the London Health Podcast. Hello, I'm JJ Nadexburn, Program Manager with the Homeless Health Team at Healthy London Partnership, here with Tim Gray, Housing Consultant. Today's episode is about housing and supporting those experiencing homelessness. Hello, Tim. Hi, JJ. Can you please share a bit about your experience with us, please? Yes. Um, well, I've been working in homelessness and supported housing since about 1990, I suppose, for the voluntary sector, housing associations, local government, national government, and more recently as a consultant. Um, one of the things I used to do is I used to run what's called the Clearing House in London, which allocates housing association accommodation from people with experience of rough sleeping who are moving on from the hostel system. And I've been involved with homelessness and rough sleeping work in London ever since. Okay, so Tim, can you can you share a bit more about the challenges or, or barriers you found? I know you wrote a report last year. Can you also speak about the findings and recommendations? Sure. Um, well, I remember when I used to have a job coordinating local authority homelessness work for the West London subregion in 2004, that we were trying then to see if we could get better protocols and arrangements between hospitals and local authority housing options departments around homelessness hospital discharge across the city to try and avoid some of the problems and misunderstandings that go on. So this isn't a problem that's, um, that's just started, but it's a tough thing to try and resolve because there are so many different in hospitals in London and there are 33 London boroughs that all operate independently of each other. So the classic situation that councils always talk about, if you ask them, is, uh, is a patient in a wheelchair being put in a taxi by the hospital on a Friday afternoon, sent to the local uh, council's office with the expectation that the council will accommodate them there and then. So from the council side, um, you know, they are concerned about being just given a problem in terms of somebody that is quite difficult to house, who they need to house immediately without proper consultation, without liaison with the hospital beforehand, and so on. Um, now, hopefully that particular instance where you get somebody just sent to the council office on a Friday afternoon was always rare, um, but it did sometimes happen. Perhaps it still does happen, perhaps perhaps not um, since, uh, since COVID. I mean, COVID's been a really terrible thing, but one of the few good things that came out of it was a real drive at the beginning of the first lockdown to get almost everyone sleeping rough off the streets and into accommodation where they could self-isolate. This was partly, of course, so that people experiencing homelessness would be less likely to spread COVID. But what it led to was much more attention to addressing the issues causing people to sleep rough, such as mental health problems, drug and alcohol issues, in some cases, unresolved immigration status, and so on. So, so really, it was pretty amazing. Suddenly, everyone started working together, councils, health, the voluntary sector, in a way that lots of people would have liked to happen before, but somehow never quite did. So, so thousands of people were given accommodation in a few weeks, often in hotels that were empty because of lockdown. And the idea of discharging people from hospital onto the streets um, became an, an anathema. Um, so, if you like, it was in that spirit of, of cooperation um, that was suddenly born around homelessness and health. But I was commissioned last year by the Greater London Authority 
Healthy London Partnership and London Councils, which is the representative organisation for the London boroughs, to look at the barriers to achieving a better process and more joined up working between hospitals and local authority homelessness services in the future. Thank you. Um, well, can you explain more from, from your perspective about the issues around hospital discharges, um, you know, for the for this population, those experiencing homelessness and why it still rumbles on? Yeah, I think it comes down to a few key things. So hospital services, as everybody knows, are really short of resources. So, so if you've been admitted to hospital and you've recovered enough to go home, there's a lot of pressure for people to be discharged so that another person who is sick can be admitted to a bed. But the problem is if someone doesn't have a home to go to, or if the place they're staying in isn't a safe place for them to recover, what do you do? And one of the worst situations of all is if someone is actually sleeping on the streets. Uh, and we know that the, uh, the health outcomes for uh, people who are sleeping rough are, are very poor in terms of um, people dying prematurely, readmission to hospital um, that shouldn't normally have happened, uh, and all sorts of other indicators that say that homelessness is bad for your health, particularly street homelessness. So since 2018, hospitals who believe a patient might be homeless when they leave the hospital have a legal duty to refer them to a local authority homelessness service for help. That's something that came in with the Homelessness Reduction Act. Uh, from April 2018. So that's the government really trying to get um, health and homelessness to work better by actually putting something in statute to, 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 to cause them to liaise more effectively together. And local authorities who get those referrals have a duty to work with the patient to prevent them becoming homeless if they can. Uh, if they can't prevent homelessness, then they have a legal duty to provide temporary accommodation if the patient is assessed as vulnerable enough. But what a local authority will always want to do, if they can, is to prevent homelessness by seeing if there's a way that the person can return to their own home, um, or uh, perhaps they can find alternative accommodation in the private rental sector or somewhere else or through a, um, uh, through a supported housing pathway so that they don't actually become homeless and have to go to temporary accommodation because temporary accommodation, generally speaking, isn't particularly uh, good accommodation. So, so a local authority will want to be informed as early as possible about a patient who might be at risk of homelessness, so they can do that sort of work. But if 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 push comes to shove, then they should provide accommodation if somebody is uh, is vulnerable and eligible for assistance. So that all sounds fine in theory, but in practice, it, it doesn't always work as well as we would hope. So, so from this work, you've discovered some gaps. Can you explain a bit more about the gaps and how challenging it is for hospital staff to discharge patients across London? Well, one thing is that nurses, and especially A&E staff, with all the other things they have to do, don't necessarily see it as part of their job or just don't have the time, they might argue, to ask a person about their housing circumstances. They're looking to solve their the health problem, it might be a really serious health problem uh, that they come into hospital with. So, so housing and understanding about what a person's housing circumstances are can take a back seat. I mean, sometimes it might be really obvious. So if somebody's been sleeping outside for a long time, you can probably tell. But in other cases, 
if you don't ask, you, you might never know that somebody doesn't have a suitable home to return to. And the question isn't always asked. And if it is asked, it isn't always asked at the beginning of somebody's admission, which would allow the most time to do something about it before they're, before they're discharged. Now, secondly, if you do find that somebody's at risk of homelessness, how do you know who to call or what information uh, they would need? What information would a local authority need if you were trying to get them to help uh, a patient of yours? Um, sometimes there might be a local arrangement between a hospital and the borough where they're located, but these aren't always up to date. And what if the patient is from a different borough um, from the hospital, or if they have been moving between different boroughs, or if they recently came to the country, um, then then what do you do then? So these are all things that complicate the situation. Another issue is, is timing. So if you're lucky, it will normally take a local authority about three working days to respond to a referral, um, you know, through the duty to refer under the legislation that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but what if the patient is treated in A&E and not admitted, or if they're only admitted for a short time, or if you only find out they're going to be homeless just before they're discharged. It doesn't fit with that three-day timescale that a local authority would ordinarily want in order, in order to be able to respond to a referral. And a fourth issue is knowing what information the local authority needs to make an assessment, and then trying to get that information. So you know you might need uh, evidence of where a patient has been living for the past five years, or you might need identification. You might need a passport. You might need a national insurance number. They might want evidence that the person is really homeless uh, and that they don't actually have somewhere that they could return to if they if they chose. Um, and they might want evidence about the person's vulnerability, uh, the medical needs, their support needs, so that they can get make the right sort of assessment about A, whether they owe a duty to them, and B, what sort of accommodation and support they would need if they move out of the hospital. So you can see why councils want that sort of information. There's a, Big shortage of housing in London and there's also a shortage of supported housing so generally speaking councils will only provide accommodation if it's clear that they do have a legal responsibility to do so so that accounts for why local authorities want some time to make an assessment but you can also see how hard it might be for medical staff who already rushed off their feet to get the information councils need quickly enough especially when all the 33 boroughs operate slightly different systems and processes. Added to that, there are quite often disputes about which council has responsibility. If a person has been living in more than one place, where do they have the strongest local connection? How is a nurse supposed to figure that out? And there are also problems if, as well as being homeless, a person has care and support needs, which need to be met by adult social services. Who provides accommodation in those circumstances? Is it housing or is it adult social care or is it them working together? Most care homes uh, are designed for elderly people, not people experiencing homeless who are vulnerable because of mental health or substance misuse issues. You know, they often don't fit in very well with the sort of systems and sort of accommodation that's provided by adult social care. So there can be gaps in there actually being appropriate accommodation that's available even if adult social services accept that they have a responsibility to help somebody. And even bigger problems if a patient's immigration status means that they are eligible for NHS treatment but they're not eligible for homelessness support when they leave hospital because of government immigration policy. This happens a lot in London. Is a hospital supposed to kick them out onto the streets 
Um, if not, what can the hospital do if the local council is actually not allowed legally to provide help to that person? It can get very difficult. Okay, so that's a lot of gaps. So, um, how do we? Uh, how do start? How do you start filling in these gaps? Um, I know you've been working with the local authority housing colleagues uh, across London and developing a, a housing directory. I'm wondering, can you explain um, what the directory is, why it's important, and and how you think it'll be used? Uh, well, I mean, as you said, JJ, there are quite a lot of gaps, and the directory is only part of the solution. Of course, I mean it's. It is also great to see the work that the Healthy London Partnership is doing to get evidence from hospitals to help map services uh, and understand the problems that exist in, in, in more detail. So that will help hopefully in, in commissioning solutions for the future. And London uh, ICS areas have been doing great work this year, working with funding from the Department for Health and Social Care to employ specialist staff to liaise between hospitals and local authorities on homeless hospital discharge. So, so those things, you know, begin to oil the wheels a little bit and clarify the problem and, and perhaps help to find some of the solutions for it. What the new directory does for the first time is to put information online on the NHS Futures website uh, for each of the 33 boroughs. So showing how to contact the housing options services, who the health lead is in those services, uh, the emails, telephone numbers, and so on. And you, and you can see that if you're in a hospital, you know, your primary job isn't about homelessness and getting housing support for someone. Uh, you've got all these different boroughs in London, personnel change in those boroughs all the time. They've all got a slightly different form to fill in. They all want slightly different information. How are you possibly supposed to keep up to date with that? And so one of the problems actually the hospitals find is they've got somebody, they know they're from a certain borough, but they just don't know who to get a hold of in that borough or, or who to contact or what information they should be supplying and so on. And even if they did know that, it's information that can very quickly get out of date. So, um, so you know, it's the sort of information that gets lost over, over a period. So, so the idea of the directory is that uh, we have information that's kept up to date by the Healthy London Partnership and is available at the touch of a button basically for anybody working in the NHS on the future NHS website, which allows them to just find out uh, who they should be talking to or emailing to in a particular borough if they've got somebody who's at risk of homelessness, what the procedure is, what they can expect in terms of response times and so on. So this is something that's never existed before and it doesn't solve all the problems, but at least it helps you to get to a point where you can make contact with the local authority in the right kind of a way. Um, in order to be able to see if the problem can be solved. Uh, the directory also includes links to the referral forms used by each borough, uh, descriptions of what to do in different circumstances. What should you do if someone's sleeping rough and comes into A&E? What's the minimum information each borough needs in order to make an assessment? They ask for slightly different things sometimes. What should you do if a patient being discharged as a council tenant? That might mean that you have to contact a different person in the in the local authority. Um, how long should you expect to wait before you get a response to a referral and you need to start chasing? And if you don't get a response, who can you contact in the borough to escalate the situation if you need to? So those are all um, pieces of information that are available now on this, uh, on this directory site. Uh, there's even a tool where you can enter a postcode and find out which local authority a person has a local connection to. Why is that useful? Well, 
It'd be completely impossible for all hospitals in London to keep the information up to date, as I said, um, and it should help to really speed things up um, by making sure that the right forms are sent to the right people in the boroughs with the right information on them in a timely way. And if there's a problem, uh, there's a phone number of someone you can talk to in the borough to try and sort things out. So this is for NHS hospital staff to access via a future NHS website, but um, local authorities also have access to it. Um, Tim, do you think, could this be a start uh, to something bigger for both housing and health and supporting those experiencing homelessness? Well, I hope so. Uh, one thing we're hoping is that as well as using the directory, hospital teams will um, give feedback when they have used it to Healthy London Partnership if there are problems working with any particular borough or boroughs. So it gives us a, a, a way to collect evidence, if you like, about the real problems that hospital teams have when they when they do contact the right person. Um, so that's not the reason for the problem anymore. The reason for the problem is that the system doesn't work in some way. So, so it will help us to find out the ways that the systems are not working and also um, where they really are working in particular boroughs so that so that different boroughs and hospitals can learn from each other in the way that they uh, engage. So if there are consistent patterns emerging, we can use that to provide feedback to individual boroughs about, about things not working in their borough. Um, but also it could provide evidence to support wider changes to the system, we hope, um, if these are if these are needed. So so it could it could really help with that sort of evidence gathering. And there's a facility on the website to provide feedback at the touch of a button. So we really hope NH staff will, will use that so that we get as much information as possible about, about what's going on. Uh, and going beyond the directory, um, there are also discussions going on in some of the ICS regions in London about whether there could be more harmonization of processes across different boroughs to make things easier for hospital staff. So, so you know, so in a particular ICS region, instead of there being you know, six different forms to fill in for each borough. Could we set something up where there's actually one form that's the same form that could go to any of those boroughs? Um, uh, can there be protocols uh, setting out minimum service standards from local authorities to hospitals and vice versa uh, across an ICS region or maybe even across uh, the whole of London in some cases? Uh, I think there's also um, opportunities to make greater use of step-down accommodation. Uh, when a patient needs to be discharged but suitable long-term accommodation has not been able to be found yet that has been shown to work well in some parts of the country and it is being used in london already but still it's in quite a quite a piecemeal fashion so so i think more could be done in that area because it does help to bridge this gap between not having time for a local authority to work out a suitable placement for someone and, and where responsibility lies and the pressure to discharge that person as quickly as possible on the hospital. Um, and perhaps finally, it would be great to see if we can develop more consistent services to provide rapid accommodation and support for people sleeping rough who do go to A&E services. There must be better ways we could use that as an opportunity so that somebody doesn't come in to get something treated around their health and then go straight back onto the streets. Um, there must be something we can do um, that avoids that. I would now like to introduce David Woodley, Westminster Homeless Health Care Navigator. David, can you please give us a little overview about who you are and what you do? Hello. So, yes, uh, thanks for having me. So, I am David Woodley, and as you say, I am the 
Westminster ICN Care Navigator. Um, the ICN stands for the Integrated Care Network. So I am based at two specialist homeless GP practices in Westminster. What is the Dr Hickey's practice and Great Chapel Street Medical Centre. I'm, I'm employed by Groundswell, um, who is a homeless health uh, charity. And it's a project, a joint project between those three services. And we support uh, clients that have experienced uh, homelessness, whether rough sleeping or in the homeless pathway uh, to address their health. Um, I work with up to about 30 clients at one time um, to support them around their health, um, whether that be to inpatient appointment, inpatient appointments or uh, primary or secondary care um, to basically improve their health. Uh, my role is quite varied as my my day to days can look very different from attending MDT meetings um, to being uh, visiting hospitals when my clients are admitted to seeing them on outreach if they're rough sleeping to um, going to see them if they're in a hostile environment. Um, and like I said, my role can be very varied. Um, I do a lot of different things, although my role is around healthcare primarily, the social side of it is, is just as important um, as we know to support someone around the social uh, support needs as just are important in, um, in regards to their health. Mm. Um, so they all kind of feed into, into each other. Following on from the conversation with Tim, we want to connect back to the discharge process itself and what, what insights can be learned from the front line and from peers uh, with lived experience. And so, David, could you maybe draw on your experience as a care navigator? Are there, are there typically um, ch typical challenges or concerns around discharging clients or uh, that you are supporting? Uh, there are challenges, uh, a lot of challenges. I think first to say is I'm very aware of the pressures um, that are put on the wards, uh, discharge coordinators, discharge teams, community teams, housing teams. Uh, at the moment, there is a lot of pressure, I think. So there are a lot of challenges. Uh, there are ways, uh, I wouldn't say to get around the challenges, but to certainly to ease them. But just to be, uh, I'm very aware of the pressures that are on these teams and services um, in the environment, uh, especially within the NHS at the moment. Um, so, I mean, we could go through quite a few of the kind of challenges that I see um, on a daily basis. Like I said, I've, I've supported a lot of clients over, I've been in this role for four years and I've probably supported over 400 clients in that period. A lot of them have spent significant time um, in hospital. So in terms of uh, some of the challenges, I think something that I always say is some of my clients are unfortunately discharged back to the streets. Although it's said that this doesn't happen, unfortunately, it does. Um, I know all the services have a duty to refer and they do have they do refer uh, to the appropriate housing, but sometimes clients go back to the streets. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the work that I do is advocating for people almost to be kept in longer. Again, there's so much pressure on beds um, within hospitals. And again, I really do understand that. Um, but I think there is a difference between someone being the term kind of fit for discharge. Um, if they are rough sleeping and fit for discharge with someone like you or I. I think if you or I were in hospital for a few days and we were fit for discharge, we would probably be going home to a family setting, someone that could look after us, keep an eye on us, make sure we're okay and have that respite. If uh, our clients are often discharged to the streets, they, they don't have that. And I think the bar is the same as in that kind of uh, capacity of are they fit for discharge? I often advocate and say, 
they they're probably fit for discharge if they were going home to a home environment um, but they're not fit for discharge to go back onto the streets and i think the same bar is used and i think a lot of the work i do is advocating with awards and the, the discharge nurses to say i think the person needs a little bit more time to heal um we need a little bit more time to look at more options but again there is so much pressure on on particularly bed spaces um so i'm based in westminster so there's a lot of large hospitals there's a lot of pressure on the bed space i'm aware um but like i said i think discharges are slightly different when someone is rough sleeping or even in the rough sleeping pathway um of whether they are fit for discharge or not um and it's making sure we have a safe discharge and i think i often talk about uh patients bouncing back is a term um so i would say do, are you confident if this person was to be discharged today are you confident they're not going to bounce back into a and e and hospital be admitted again in the next few days and mm. um like i said it's building up that relationships with the teams in hospital unfortunately it's been a role for a while so i've got some really good uh relationships with a lot of dist uh the district nurses and ward sisters and discharge nurses and they know my role they know me and i'm i'm not trying to block their block spaces i'm not trying to make their job difficult that i just do advocate for my clients to i think to be treated slightly differently uh, because they're homeless um i often i see that they're sometimes discriminated against because um often uh, addicted and dependent on drugs or alcohol and it's all they're homeless and they, they we, we know them and they bounce in and out and this is what they do kind of um language um but i think i advocate a lot against that and say actually this person needs a lot more a lot more respite and a lot more support than your average patient so david it sounds like you're giving a really great um example of things gone well um I, i'm curious if you could share maybe an example of um, a process uh, when you know discharging someone that didn't go so well. What are the types of accommodation and support available that you've seen? Yeah, so um, um, I don't know if you're aware of the term no recourse to public funds, but no recourse to public funds are clients that I work with who don't have access to state benefits. So housing benefit or universal credit because they've not exercised their rights uh, in the UK. So they've either not been here for long enough um, but they or they've they've not exercised their treaty, so they have no recourse to secondary care. So in Westminster, approximately fifty percent of rough sleepers have no recourse to public funds. So if if I have quite a high high level of my clients have no recourse, and if they were to go into hospital and be admitted, there's a lot of charging um, questions. We could probably do a whole different podcast on that, but that's not the main thing in terms of discharge. It, how do you discharge someone to a safe place following admission if they have no recourse so they can't get housing benefits and there is very very few options uh, to support someone who has no recourse so within westminster um like i said 50 percent of rough sleepers there are some step down beds uh, so step down from hospital into the rough sleeping pathway um but i think there's free um and you're talking probably 200 plus rough sleepers no recourse so then they're very sought after. Um, and again, if you're, for instance, a pathways team and you you have someone they recourse and they need step down, they need respite post and the ward are putting pressure on them um, to discharge a person, there's very, very few options. Uh, it often falls on the third sector. So uh, charity, um, churches and things like that. But 
again, it's that advocating of this person's, I, I mean, could be a multiple different reasons why they've been admitted, but say they have a, a heavy trauma and then a week later, we're potentially discharging someone back to a church circuit where often you would come in in the evening, nine, 10 o'clock, you would sleep on a, um, not a bunk bed of say, but say a sleeping bag or a duvet. And then you're asked to leave early in the morning, eight, nine o'clock and that you're out, you're out during the day. How are you supposed to recover? Um, when you're trying to manage that and often they're scattered in different places. Um, but recalls public funds is huge. Um, it's when I first started the about four years ago, I think it was about a third of our population had no recourse and it's definitely increased. It's about 50% now. And the challenges that we're seeing of supporting people um, who have no recourse, who have often very, very complex health support needs. Um, a lot come, the Roma population in Westminster is quite high and often they have very fixed health beliefs. They have very poor health and nutrition um, and their support is even higher than I think what our average client that we support uh, needs are. Um, and again, when you're talking about discharge from hospital, they have a family background. Again, it adds another level of complexity, but in terms of discharging someone safe with no recourse, it's extremely difficult. So, so David, through our podcast, we've um, talked a lot about the need for this coordinated work um, between health, housing, and, and care. Um, yeah. And you've shared some some examples throughout this. Um, I'm just I'm just curious to know about uh, again, I guess, expanding on what you've said, because you've spoken a lot about working within the hospital and maybe extending their stay in the hospital. But could you share a little bit more about that? when you do find a suitable com accommodation, um, when it does work uh, and you see the healthcare needs are being attended to, can you can you see what 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 does that picture look like? Yeah, um, so often I think what tends to happen is I'll be working with someone whose health uh, deteriorates, they become quite unwell and often it leads to admission. Now, part of my role is try to reduce slash stop that before it happens. Um, we can't always do that. Like I said, over the health of our client group is very, very complex. Um, so if someone is admitted, personally, I see that as an opportunity to get relevant services involved um, because they're in hospital. Um, it's sometimes easier to get assessments done when someone's an inpatient than it is in the community. That's not normally because of the service or the structure of service, but normally the client and their, let's say, chaotic lifestyle. Um, it's not really a term that I like, but it can be very difficult um, to get assessments done in the community. So often when I know someone's been admitted, that's a call to arms for me to get everyone involved there. I know where they are, I know how we can access them, I know we can get assessments done. So in the past, I will use that to involve, whether it be adult social care, uh, pathways teams, uh, mental health services, drug and alcohol services, to get assessments done while they're an inpatient. So we have had some great successes um, like I said, I've been in the role for about four years. We've had some great successes working in conjunction with the services in Westminster, um, whether it be substance issues, like I said, um, mental health. We work very, very closely with them. Uh, adult social care as well. Um, we have a lot of MDT meetings with these services. Um, so we can, for this exact reason, that we can all come together and work as a team and share share risk almost. Um, and we have some some very successful situations when people have been rough sleeping or not in appropriate accommodation and then they'll go into an inpatient they'll be assessed and often it's found that our clients do have uh, care needs 
Um, often care is put into place, safeguardings are put into place, um, and, and they start to engage with mental health teams or drug and alcohol teams. And upon discharge, if someone I'm working with is rough sleeping, I mean, it's, it can be extremely difficult to get them engaged while they're rough sleeping. I think, I'm sure you can imagine that if you are rough sleeping, that it's probably not your priority to engage around your health. Your priority is probably to have you, like your everyday need met, food, drink, shelter, things like that. Um, so when you have someone like me said, oh, we need to address your health, it's not always their priority. If someone's in accommodation, it it really helps the situation where to, for, for that person to have the ability to engage with me and engage with multiple services. So I think, again, it's a lot about advocating. So if somebody's an inpatient, I will advocate for the local authorities uh, to say that I'm working with this, this person. And if they were to be in accommodation, then this is what I can put in place and it'd be, it'd be easier to address their health. And and it's it's doing it in a planned world way rather than an emergency firefighting way. And often, luckily, I've, has, I've access to a lot of different databases. I can use data on the person to kind of advocate. I can, for example, I can say this person's been admitted to your hospital five times over the last six months. They've been admitted for an average of six, seven days uh, um, on each occasion. This time, if we were to maybe do a step down bed um, and give them some respite for six, seven weeks, give them the opportunity to engage with myself and other services, for instance, drug and alcohol, mental health, then we could reduce that or potentially stop that. And I think it's not in terms of monetaries, it's not something that drives me, but I think in the world we live in with the NHS, it, it, you know what I mean? It's language that does work um, mm. when I'm talking to hospitals because they do need to save money. Uh, they mm. do need to think about um, uh, bed spaces and so forth. So sometimes I will use things like that to advocate. But like I said, we have had some really good successes over the last few years. Um, and it's all about relationship and joint working between these services. So um, what would you say from the perspective of an um, individual uh, experiencing homelessness from that? Like, what are some practical things um, the front, frontline staff could be um, doing in regards to maybe communication? Um, what would advice you give to those uh, who are working with dis specifically on the discharge process? What should they be aware of? What should they know? I think the biggest thing that I notice is often plans are made for clients slash patients. Um, without them being involved in that, they have no ownership over it. So often there will be MDT meetings or there'll be discussions with uh, the pathways teams or with the discharge nurses and they will identify an, an option, say, for accommodation. So this is something that I actually was involved in last week. Um, a huge bit of work was put in place. I wasn't directly involved for a lady to be discharged and they... Uh, they got a replacement down in South London. And when they were ready to discharge her and said, well, we're sending you down to South London. She said, why would I go to South London? And <laughs> I wasn't involved in this conversation at all. No one at any point mentioned about going to South London. I'm a Westminster resident and I've always lived in Westminster. My family, my support network, my services are all in Westminster. And the hospital almost were put out. They said, but we've done all this work to get you this place. But at no point was she involved in that decision making. And if in the very beginning, they could have just asked her, what is it you would like? How can we help? Um, what are your expectations? And involved her in that decision making process. 
it would have saved everybody a lot of time and a lot of work. And it's something that I, I do see a lot. I see a lot of that plans are made for people without them being involved in that in the plans. Hmm. Okay, good. Um, any any other tips or <laughs> recommendations? I mean, it's difficult, I think, uh, to be, em be a very empathetic. And again, I'm, I spend some time in clinical settings, whether it be A&E on an award, and it's very difficult for me to give advice to someone that has such a high pressured role um, for me to say, oh, maybe try this and try that. And I think the only thing I can say is, is empathy. Uh, try and put yourself in this person's position of what they're going through. Again, the trauma and being trauma informed of um, what the person's been going through. If you imagine, again, when you arrive, we've been in hospital, we know how anxious you can feel and your health can all can be really something that creates a lot of anxiety within you it, but then imagine putting yourself in that person's position where maybe they don't know where they're sleeping that night they don't know where they're eating that night they they had years of trauma I mean I, I can only say just try and empathize and understand that and I again I hear things about maybe um, people being quite awkward let's say when they're on the wards and again I'm like but this is a very difficult environment um, for my clients um, in a hospital. Maybe they've they've been sectioned in the past or in, been in prison. And although it's a slightly different setting, um, it can be quite traumatizing for them. And again, like I said, they are very, very busy and I don't want to criticize it in the slightest. Um, but I think if they were given more time to have that kind of social discussion with people on the one, just have empathy and, Try and build a relationship with them maybe they'll understand why you know what i mean the, the lifestyle is the way that is empathy is key it sounds excellent so david thank you very very much for um speaking with us today and for sharing your um your wisdom i really appreciate it um no for listeners just to remind you back about the housing options london housing options directory which is on future nhs and there'll be a link available for that um, for all frontline staff to use to help with uh, smooth and safe discharge for appropriate accommodations um, to the right care. Um, David, any last words? No, thanks for having me. Um, again, I just want to reiterate, reiterate, I can't even say the word, that um, again, is a lot of pressure on a lot of different services and individuals um, within these services. And I fully respect the work that they do. I think it is just um, realizing that every, we all have our own individual pressures at work and but we can all work together to try and improve. Um, so yeah, but thank you for having me. Great, all right, thank you very much.